Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Tonight I want to talk about... <clears throat> is this loud enough? Can you hear? A little, little higher? A little bit higher. Uh, tonight I want to talk about uh, seeing this uh, path of practice as a path of happiness. <clears throat> We've heard talks on dukkha and the Four Noble Truths, and uh, it's so profound what the Buddha shared, of course, and that he had the, um, the wisdom and the courage to start off the teaching with just naming the fact that there is suffering in life. But sometimes when we hear the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there's an end to suffering, and there's a path leading to the end to suffering. That's a lot of suffering. And uh, sometimes we can forget that uh, he taught this so that we can experience the highest happiness. He said, go for the highest happiness and you will get all the other beautiful happinesses along the way. And he was called the happy one. <clears throat> but sometimes we can uh, forget this. And I wanted to point out his teachings on happiness and what has made sense to me uh, as a, a direct way to not only understand conceptually but to practice with this in mind. And I think I'll, I'll start off with a, a quote from um, Thomas Byram's uh, translation of the Dhammapada. He says, uh, he's quoting the Buddha, Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, and know the sweet joy of the way. <clears throat> we, most of us are motivated to practice because we are looking for an end to suffering. And perhaps the promise of uh, deep well-being. I know that's what motivated me. Um, but sometimes the messages that we hear and the way certain teachings are understood or misunderstood can, um, uh, can hide the fact that this is about opening up to joy and the highest happiness. I started practice um, many years ago. I, I mentioned that there was some uh, my own inner 
angst and and uh, uh, and pain, uh, and um, I thought there was something really here that moved me right away. But uh, I'm also um, a very uh, I can be a very passionate person, uh, intense. Some sometimes friends say, um, although my some relatives say, "Gosh, you're so." Boring and calm, you know. <laughs> Just depends, it's all relative. No, they don't. <clears throat> they don't usually say boring, but I, that's what I sometimes project. <clears throat> Underneath, oh, you're so calm, you know. Is there some life in there? Um, <laughs> but I can get very intense and passionate. And when I first started practicing, um, I, um, I had a crisis early on in that, that very first summer at Naropa I mentioned in 1974. And uh, I came into the class one, one day and I was wearing my uh, New York Knicks t-shirt. For those who are uneducated in that sphere, the, the New York Knicks are a basketball team and I am a big basketball fan as most people who know me know. And I was, at the time, living in New York, this is in the early 70s for you basketball fans, at the height of the New York Knicks incredible teams. And I was a season ticket holder in Madison Square Garden. So I was sitting there one afternoon in my New York Knicks t-shirt. And as much as I was falling in love with the practice, this a uh, disturbing thought came to me as I realized I was wearing my Knicks shirt and I said, hold on a moment. Uh, my thinking was in my mind. Uh, am I going to go to Madison Square Garden, the scene of some of my peak moments in my life, and watch a game and be going, nice shot, Frazier. <laughs> Good pass, Havlicek. Because you know. uh, I was not ready to sign on for that, if, if that's what it meant. And it was actually the first time that I had enough um, mm, uh, chutzpah, as, as the, the Pali word is. Uh, <laughs> nerve is the translation. To go up to Joseph and... Uh, and say, um, listen, I need to talk to you. <laughs> and I presented him with my concern, and uh, I said, I, you know, I don't know if, you know, where is this leading? You know, will I go to the game and be like that? And he gave me a great answer. He assured me, um, no, you'll still probably feel that intensity, but you'll probably get over a loss sooner. I said, okay, I'm in. So I, I did go in and I was completely uh, into practice and had what's called a long honeymoon period where I just fell in love with the Dharma, did a lot of retreats those really first 10 years of my I kept my life going on the outside, but it was more uh, my inner life was what was really pulling me, and, and maybe some of you know that feeling. Uh, 
But at some point, I um, became very serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead. (laughs) And I lost my joy. And I misunderstood some very profound teachings, um, not so much conceptually, but, uh, but non-verbally and internally, uh, that can be misunderstood or uh, interpreted in certain ways. Uh, and I'll share with you two, just you might be familiar with these, uh, but they're important to s- understand that the teachings have nuances and, and uh, if you read something and you say, whoa, I don't know, I don't think this is for me, there might be other layers to explore. So um, one, one teaching is on a very profound um, understanding and feeling inside uh, known as Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that a number of people here are familiar with that word. Here is uh, one translation, Tanasaro Bhikkhu's translation of Samvega. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Sounds like fun, huh? This is a very um, important um, part of the process that if one keeps going into deeper practice um, will probably sooner or later come to you. Maybe you've hit, as one person was saying in an interview, what I used to call uh, the big so what. Like, what's the point? You know, if, if it's all just suffering and you know as, as sometimes it says you're born you suffer and then you die you know is one way of describing our life journey uh, but samvega the operative term in this definition is the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived and it's true that one can you start seeing just the, the wheel of samsara and say, wow, is, is this it? Is, well, are we just bound in suffering? And the antidote to samvega is that sense of urgency that, that arises and gives way to what's called pasada, which is sometimes called a, a clarity and serene confidence in the path, that there is a deeper meaning to life and a deeper um, potential for happiness. But you hear that meaninglessness of life and one can easily take it to mean, oh, life is a drag and let's get out of here as fast as we can. Another uh, term 
that can be misinterpreted or misconstrued is uh, another very powerful and valuable uh, understanding known as Nibbida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, which, um, which is, well, I'll, I'll read one translation, okay? I'll read a few different translations um, talking about seeing what's impermanent and seeing the aggregates themselves, this mind-body process is impermanent. One translation, therefore, one should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates, which is another way, way of saying for this mind and body. Or a, a second translation, um, utter revulsion for the aggregates. You hear that and you say, oh, I'm supposed to develop a disgust for this mind and body or a revulsion when it comes to the body. Now, so many of us have a hard time to begin with looking in the mirror and liking our body. You know, <laughs> We don't need a little bit more encouragement. Yeah, you gotta really develop some more disgust and revulsion for your body and mind. But another, a deeper translation for Nibida, and there's a beautiful essay by uh, Andy Olensky from uh, the study center, you could read on this, where really the word Nibida uh, more accurately is translated as uh, one should develop a disenchantment with regard to the aggregates, which is another way of saying uh, not under their spell, breaking the enchantment or the, spe- the, the, um, uh, the falling in love and being drawn to the package of this mind and this body. A disenchantment is a he- very healthy uh, understanding where you're not completely swept away by the different packages of this form. Very different than utter disgust and revulsion. So looking at that and seeing mm, I maybe, um, maybe I've misunderstood something here, uh, it also occurred to me that this is uh, something that many people could misunderstand. And I wanted to read to you one more quote. And this is from Ajahn Sumedho, who we talked about before who um, is a very wise being. He says, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel to re- compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. And he goes on to say, 
people who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find that you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. The Buddha talks about so many different um, aspects of joy and well-being. Many beautiful names. Joy is one of the factors of enlightenment, of awakening. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment, just in case you're (laughs) wondering. Joy is one of the divine abodes, the Brahma-viharas. It's one of the um, jhana factors, five uh, jhanic factors. And there are a number of different um, mm, expressions of joy. Pamoja, sometimes translated as gladness. Piti, rapture or bliss. Sukha, happiness. And there's contentment and there's peace, many, many different flavors that we can cultivate and that he encouraged to cultivate. The Dalai Lama starts out his uh, beautiful book, The Art of Happiness, with this very simple, profound line. The purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just let that land, take that in. The purpose of life is to be happy. You might seem to think, well, that seems kind of self-indulgent. Or, uh, you know, what can that possibly mean? But, as the Buddha was pointing, going for the highest happiness, that when you find true well-being within yourself, then you're not obstructing all the beautiful qualities that you've been gifted with. And they shine through naturally. Those qualities of heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, and all the other beautiful qualities, the paramitas, generosity, um, patience, uh, courage. It's not a paramita, but it's an inherent uh, quality of, of heart. All of those things shine through when we are not contracted in confusion or fear. So he starts out, the purpose of life is to be happy. So, uh, as I said, I lost my joy and for a period of time, it was a dissonance between, is it okay to love watching basketball, you know, let alone football, that's a whole other story, Uh, or 
singing and dancing or delighting in the, the, um, the beauty of things and loving life. Uh, and uh, it, it was a very important um, process for me to, to sort out um, because somehow I didn't feel like I was a good Buddhist at heart or this, the Buddha had turned from being the most inspiring figure to being a kind of stern taskmaster that I was internally projecting, you better not enjoy life. And that was painful. So when I came to realize the Dharma is about f- opening up to your true nature and all aspects of your true nature, and I realized my part of my nature that I've been given is, um, is loving life. Uh, I, I kind of reclaimed my, my joy. And it made me, instead of turning away from the teachings, uh, made me really curious to see, well, what exactly did the Buddha say about happiness and developing happiness, not just in the awakened heart and mind, but in a more practical and fundamental and um, mundane way, and how we can practice with this in mind. And I saw some beautiful teachings that hadn't really um, crystallized in my mind and heart in that same way. Uh, as I started to uh, to look through that lens, and ended up, as uh, you probably know, writing a book about awakening joy, and teaching a course on awakening joy, and uh, so sometimes going through the difficulties can uh, uh, can help you really understand and want to um, see things in a new way. So it turned out to be a really, uh, a really good thing. Uh, and in that exploration, uh, there were three particular principles from the Buddha's teachings that struck me that if, that when put together could be um, perhaps a, an effective way to approach practice. I want to share those with you and maybe uh, a few other aspects of what I found. So, the first teaching is, um, has to do with understanding where happiness really lies. And this is the teaching on wise effort. You know, one of the eightfold path links wise effort, mindfulness, concentration. I mentioned it uh, the last, last talk I gave on the five faculties. Wise effort, the actual, uh, the technical definition of wise effort in, in, in one uh, body of teachings, uh, there are four qualities or four aspects of wise effort. Two having to do with 
what are called unwholesome states or akusala, A-K-U-S-A-L-A, and two, having to do with wholesome states or kusala. And the four, the first two, are guarding against unwholesome states when they uh, before they arise, if you can. That is, not putting yourself in temptation's way or uh, um, ways that you, that you might get activated and do unskillful things. You know, if you're, if you're going, uh, uh, trying to, um, um, uh, to cut your calories, don't hang out in Dunkin' Donuts, you know, the donut shop, right? Just guard against places that will just uh, make it hard for you to, uh, to cultivate skillful habits. Guard against those, wholesome, those unwholesome states from arising. And if they do arise, which they do from time to time, as you probably have seen, to learn how to overcome them, which is a big part of what we're doing here. If you have fear or confusion or wanting or self-judgment, all of those are part of being human and we're offering and hopefully you're seeing very skillful ways to hold and work with those unwholesome states when they arise. And akusala, unwholesome, means states that are uh, suffering in themselves and that lead to more suffering, like greed, hatred, and delusion, the big three. So those are two aspects of wise effort. And then the other two aspects have to do with wholesome states. One, developing wholesome states as we're doing, developing mindfulness, developing loving kindness, developing compassion, that it's possible to cultivate those states. And you practice them and they can arise. And then the fourth of the wise efforts is maintaining and increasing wholesome states when they have arisen. So if you are feeling a wholesome state, like non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or another way of saying that, generosity or letting go, um, non-hatred, loving-kindness, friendliness, non-delusion, clarity or wisdom, and all the other wholesome states like, as I mentioned before, um, uh, compassion and uh, generosity, etc., etc. When you're cultivating those, to uh, when they have arisen, to actually um, maintain and increase them, he said that's a good thing. But the tricky thing is, this is, is that if you try to grasp at a wholesome state and are trying to get more or bring it on, you've just fallen into an unwholesome state. Because any kind of grasping and you're back to contraction. All the unwholesome states are states of contraction. Fear, confusion, anger, wanting, all the wholesome states are states of expansion, 
letting go, generosity, kindness. And as soon as you try to grasp on to a wholesome state, then you just turned it into an unwholesome one. So how to understand how to maintain and increase the wholesome state? And we'll get to that in a moment. But the important thing is to see, oh, this is where happiness lies. Not in things, not in more stuff, but they are, these are innate qualities of mind and heart. And I'll, I'll share with you what we're up against. And maybe you've, I have this in the book, but uh, you don't get the graphic illustration. This is an ad that somebody gave me a while ago. It's called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. This is the ad. The gold shivers that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. (laughs) Second page. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. It's brilliant, right? You might not even care about jewelry, but you look at that and say, I'd like some of that too. Yeah, you know. Or you might say, I, that, I don't fall for that. I'm a very critical consumer. You know. I know better. I'm a Dharma practitioner, and I don't believe that stuff. The thing is, it works. It works. Even if you don't think it's working, that's how our brains are wired up. If you get messages, enough messages, they start to sink in. That's why Coca-Cola would pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds of your attention so you see happiness, Coke. Ah, That's it. You say, oh, I don't even like Coca-Cola. Yeah. Well, just think about if you have any kind of conditioning about mm, body image, appearance, success, ways that you measure yourself up against some kind of imaginary, fabricated standard either made up by madmen uh, or uh, the, the cultural, um, conventional ideals of success, it sinks in as painful as it is. For that matter, those who have privilege or those who don't have privilege. Besides the, uh, the obvious um, practical disadvantages, 
images, self-images, how you're thought of or, or suspected or how you just go through life thinking, oh yes, life is easy. Those things sink in. And we're here to unlearn those kinds of conditioning. So to see wholesome states and see it's not about the ideals or messages that we get from outside. It's inside. They're right in here. This is your true nature. And if you, I'll show you a, maybe a more pleasant picture to uh, take that out. If you want to see your true nature, I want to show you a picture of um, Chloe Thomas from Melbourne, Australia, who was born uh, eight weeks premature. And this is a picture before she had actually reached nine months um, full after conception. Uh, this is Chloe, and it's really you. So, just, you see? Do you remember? That was you. And if you come into this world and you've, you've been given a little bit of love and your diapers have been changed and your stomach fed, what do you do? You squeal with delight. You know, wow, isn't life wonderful? That's why we love being around babies because it somehow reminds us of that. And you might say, yeah, well, that was a long time ago. Uh, I don't know about me now. Actually, <laughs> they've done uh, research and put people in fMRI machines and hook them up and there are electrodes in their, their brain. And if uh, an adult is, um, doesn't have pain or stress in the body, you know, that's big right there, or pain or stress in the mind, another pretty big one, <laughs> but if you are stress-free, and that includes a lot of the stress that we add on ourselves, a lot of that, what the the brain uh, exhibits in that fMRI machine, you, uh, it shows human to, an adult human to be calm, conscious, creative, caring, and content. That's your natural state. And that is actually what the Buddha said too, if you can see through all the stress, which is one translation for the word dukkha, that we create for ourselves, we will naturally open up to the Buddha inside, to the highest happiness. So he was saying the same thing. So one, to see that the happiness we're looking for is right inside of us and that wholesome states are the way to create not only happiness in the moment, but create the conditions for a deeper kind of profound happiness of awakening. The first principle that strikes me. Second one related to this in um, one lesser known discourse, Majima 99, Majima Nikaya 99, he says um, that there is a gladness 
that we experience when we are having a wholesome state. A gladness connected with that wholesome state. Like, for instance, just for a moment right now, close your eyes and think of something that brings you joy. Might be dancing or, well, I won't say anything. And remember the last time, if you can recall. And just as you're recalling it, notice how you feel right now. And there's not one right answer, but just notice how you feel. Oh, yeah, I just love doing that. Having that. Okay, you can open your eyes. Just take a few comments. What do you notice inside? Anything physically? Just take a one at a time. What does it feel like in there? Was it? Warm. Warm. Yeah, good. What else? Ease. Ease, yes. There's a lot of possibilities here. Happy, okay. Joy, and the visceral feeling uh, as well as the, the, the mental state. Huh? Was it? Expanding, yes. Light, yeah. Anyone not, that's not been named? Content, yes. So you see lots of different expressions of that. They're all pointing to this feeling of gladness or uplift that you get when you're in the middle of a wholesome state. And he says, notice that. In fact, in this discourse, he gives the example, if you're in the middle of a generous act, he says, he recommends, think to yourself, I'm being generous right now. This is the Buddha saying this, you know. Oh, I'm being generous. He's not saying, check it out. I hope everybody sees how generous I am, you know. But he's saying, just notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. Oh, yes. And then he says in this discourse, that gladness connected with the wholesome, one gains inspiration in the meaning one uh, gladdens the heart in the, in, the, in the feeling of the truth of that. And then he says, that gladness connected with the wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to disarm all hostility. You know, you can have a bummer of a day and somebody says, hi, you know, oh, I really love the way you look right now or whatever it is or I really uh, I want you to know I appreciate it and all of a sudden oh maybe life isn't so bad you know just in a moment that gladness can dispel disarm all hostility so he says notice it it's an equipment of mind and this is the way to maintain and increase the wholesome state to be here for it, to not miss it. Which is very easy to do because we 
don't as naturally incline to paying attention to those wholesome states. Maybe you have had a, you know, a couple of wholesome moments here. Hopefully you have in the last week and a half. Um, but the mind can gravitate towards, oh, there's my mind wandering again, or there's that old habit of self-judgment, or whatever it is. And this is not because you're doing something wrong. We have, we're wired up to notice what's wrong. There's this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain that perhaps you're familiar with called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what's wrong. And it's a good thing that we have it. It's a survival mechanism. But we tend to notice what's wrong and miss what's right. As Rick Hansen, who teaches here sometimes and was, was on the board, a Spirit Rock board, and is a neuroscience expert, and he, he teaches it at the Joy Course, as he says, the brain is uh, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. So it takes some practice to notice and let register what is right. And Rick's formula, he has this formula, neuroscience says that when you pay attention to something and really take it in, that it deepens the neural pathways and starts to um, develop that habit. So he says when you are in the middle of a wholesome state, um, to take 30 seconds, if you can, and really take it in. Feel what it's like in the mind and even more in the body and in the heart, the whole being, and really drink it in. He, his formula is if you do that six times in a day, I know that's three minutes of well-being if you can stand it, right? If you do that six times in a day, over the course of a two-week period, you will start noticing a shift in your whole level of well-being, both because you're deepening the neural pathways and you're also starting to have your radar out for the good. When we're stressed, the amygdala is even more active and it's that much harder to notice the good. Have you noticed when the mind gets contracted, you know, then you're looking through life through that filter. So he says, you might just try practicing taking in the good, which is what this talk is pointing about, pointing to. And actually, uh, these days, he's cut it down from 30 seconds. He said he's seen it even with uh, 10 or 15 seconds. So you can spare yourself if it's too much to go for three minutes, you know. Okay, so that's the second. One, noticing wholesome states when they arise and maintaining and increasing them by two, getting in touch, feeling the gladness connected with the wholesome. And then the third teaching that I've been very moved by, I'm not sure it's been mentioned here before, very simple powerful teaching from Majima Nikaya number 19. 
And he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon will be the inclination of your mind. That's why practice is such a bottom line word in this whole endeavor we're doing. It's all about practicing. As you frequently think and ponder upon, as you frequently um, bring moments of mindfulness to your day, you start to incline your mind to be more present and more mindful. As you cultivate loving kindness, that starts to be where the mind lands. In modern neuroscience, the axiom coined by Donald Hebb uh, many decades ago is neurons that fire together, wire together. That's how it works. That's why practicing a piano has some effect. Or practicing loving kindness. Or knowing the, the root home from work. It's just all wired in there. So what we're doing in one way, you might think of it as rewiring your neurons, your, your brain circuits towards well-being. Isn't that wonderful? And especially in modern neuroscience where they discovered that the brain is not set like they used to think it was when I was growing up. This is how many cells you, brain cells you have and that's the way and they, they'll either die off slowly or you're just stuck with the way you have. Now that's been completely found to be wrong as sometimes can happen in science and the brain is so sculptable, so malleable so if we practice wholesome states and noticing the wholesome states, we get better and better at recognizing them when they arise. Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon, if you frequently think and ponder upon how uh, life is a drag and everybody around you is going to disappoint you and you're a loser, you'll have ample evidence to confirm your hypothesis, right? But that's what you'll be looking through. That's the lens you'll be looking through. If you frequently think and ponder upon how mm, amazing it is to be alive or how underneath it all, we all really want to feel safe and be loved and love if we're given the right opportunity and conditions and that basically there's a goodness inside here as well. If you frequently think and ponder and look for that, that's what you'll more likely see. Because another discovery they have in modern neuroscience is called a confirmation bias. That what you believe, your brain will notice and it will miss everything that doesn't conform to your belief system or likely miss unless you're kind of, you know, it's staring you right in the face. Even then, it takes a little bit of coaxing sometime. Oh yeah, maybe it is true. 
maybe I am okay. You know? So what we're doing is practicing frequently thinking and pondering upon and being mindful, which happens to be the way to develop all the other skillful habits. So then uh, what I decided to do and what um, has been very profound uh, in, uh, in my own practice and, and uh, can be in yours is seeing this path as cultivating various wholesome states and being present for them. Because one of the things about mindfulness, two properties of mindfulness along this line of developing it as a path of happiness, one is with all of those healthy and unhealthy states, kusala and unkusala, there's 52 mental factors in Buddhist psychology. That's kind of the deck that you're dealt. Sometimes you wonder, did everybody get a full deck? But, uh, but that's the way that we are, are given. We all have these different capacities. And of all the different factors, the wholesome and the unwholesome, or the particular or the, the common, there's different, there are different categories of mental factors. There's one mental factor that weakens all the unwholesome states and cultivates all the wholesome states. Guess which one? Mindfulness. That's why, as the Buddha said, it is the most direct way to overcome sorrow and lamentation, grief, despair, and pain and anxiety and realize the highest happinesses mindfulness. So that's one thing that all you need to do is be mindful and you'll be cultivating wholesome states. However, mindfulness has the added ability that when a wholesome state has arisen, if you pay attention to it without grasping, but just notice, oh, here's calm. Not bring it on or I hope it doesn't go away, but just, oh, this is calm. Let's open up to it. Oh, this is joy. Oh, this is metta. This is compassion. That when you pay attention to it, it actually amplifies that wholesome state. Fantastic, isn't it? So what I... Uh, decided to do in this in this course is looking at the different wholesome states that could easily be practiced both on the cushion or in one's daily life and see when they arise to bring your full attention to them and I encourage you as you're practicing here any moments of well-being don't miss them it's not cheating. It's actually really skillful. Sometimes people can, can report very, very clear, good mindfulness practice. Oh, there was pain, and then there was suffering, and then there was frustration, and then there was confusion, and then was despair, 
and then was, you know, a crash, and then was more suffering, and, you know, yeah, you're being mindful. Hello, there's another story here, too. And uh, this has happened a number of times, and if you find yourself tend to notice the, the, the difficult, you know, then when it's here, you want to honor it. You don't want to pretend it's not here. You want to learn how to, how to work with it. But if you find yourself just in the rut of noticing the dukkha, you might just, as an extra credit assignment, start noticing moments of well-being. When people do the joy course and they say, you know, awakening joy, give me a break. I'll just take not being miserable. You know, I'll say, great, start noticing moments when you're not miserable. You know. And lo and behold, when you start noticing, oh, hey, this is a moment I'm not miserable. What do you know? You know? Or, oh, this is a moment that's kind of okay. Okay is good enough. Don't look for bells and whistles. Because if you're looking for bells and whistles, it's not going to measure up and you'll just feel discouraged. But if you just open up that channel, a trickle of okayness, a trickle of ease, a trickle of less miserable than five hours ago, that starts opening the expansive heart. So notice those moments. And it starts with the intention to notice them. Intending is the key. Intending to notice moments of well-being and you start to incline your mind that way. And there's many, many different um, uh, states from uh, intention and uh, loving kindness and compassion and letting go and sila and, and all that, uh, that I found really practicable, helpful to, to practice. They all will lead you to the same place of opening up and awakening a joy that's there. And one of those, by the way, one of the ten, one of the keys is opening to the pain and the sorrow within us. And in this one beautiful teaching, uh, I don't know if we'll get to right now uh, or this uh, in the talks, maybe I'll, I'll bring it up in, later on, uh, is uh, one that says suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise. Faith can lead to gladness. Gladness can lead to joy, to contentment, to equanimity, all the way to the highest states of happiness. So, so suffering is definitely part of this path, know, knowing how to process our suffering. But I'll just leave you with one of these states that you can see and share a story to, to end, end the talk. One of the most direct ways of opening to uh, a wholesome state is the reflection on gratitude. In, I think in the, uh, the Metta Sutta, to be content and, and, and grateful. No, in the Mangala Sutta, 
to be content and grateful. This is a, a blessing supreme. And gratitude opens up the heart in a very beautiful way, a very profound way, just by seeing all the blessings in your life as a, just a little practice to show you how mindfulness added on to a wholesome state um, really is the way to maintain and increase it. Just like you to uh, close your eyes for a moment and um, reflect on some blessing in your life, someone or something that you're grateful to or grateful for. And maybe bring uh, an image of that person or that situation into your consciousness. And then give a simple silent thank you right from your heart. Thank you. And now let your awareness just relax into that feeling. Thank you. Don't miss it. Notice the landscape of gratitude. You can take a breath. You can do another one. Bring another blessing into your life. There's so many. Have an image of that person or that situation. A simple thank you from your heart. Thank you to life or to whoever. And then just rest in it. Just bring your awareness, take it in. Okay, you can open your eyes. So this is how it works. You don't have to get into anything intense or, or spend an hour milking it, just resting in it. And it's possible to cultivate this quality and any quality as you frequently think and ponder. And I'll just end with a story. The mo for me, the most uh, profound story in this whole uh, um, journey of awakening joy that I, I share in the book, and maybe some of you have heard, and that's the story of my mom who... Um, passed away last year at the age of 94. Um, and uh, this story, uh, and it was a, a beautiful passing, uh, and this story um, uh, took place while I was writing the book, and I went down to visit her uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, my sister lives n right near her, and my sister was going away for a few weeks, um, and I, we both agreed, oh, I'll go down and I'll visit uh, visit mom and I have uh, I had a really good relationship with with my mom um, especially in the later years of as we both matured and grew older uh, and uh, and I was really looking forward to to spending time with her and I was writing uh, the chapter on gratitude and I came down with all of this research on gratitude that it improves your immune system, it makes you, uh, your relationships better, and you take better care of yourself, and just on and on and on. And I read it to her, and I said, what do you think, Mom? 
She said, that's very impressive. And then, um, and one thing I should tell you about my mom, my mom, by her own admission, has um, been uh, uh, seeing the negative for her whole life, seeing the glass half empty. And in fact, when the retreat is over, you can see her. My mom is a YouTube star. If you go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, and the subtitle is How My Son Ruined My Life, uh, which is up to now uh, 328,000 views because she's very funny. Anyway, she tells this story, and I said, Mom, um, wouldn't it be great to have a gratitude practice? And she looked at me, she said, James, I know my life is very blessed, but I've been seeing the glass half empty for a long time, and I don't think I'm about to change. I said, um, yeah, I can understand that. And then I, something inspired me. I said, well, let me ask your mom, if you could change, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I would, but don't hold your breath on it. You know? <laughs> and then I said, let's play a little game. You know, you say that your life is blessed. You can say things two different ways. You can say, uh, and I gave this example, you can say, I know my life is very blessed, but this TV reception is so lousy and it's driving me crazy. Or you could say, this TV reception is lousy and I know my life is blessed. And she said, oh yeah, there's a difference to that. And I said, well, let's play a game. Every time you complain, I'll just remind you and like you say, Oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey, Southern California, <laughs> which she often would say, it's so cold here. And I'll say, and, and you say, and my life is very blessed. <laughs> and she said, okay, because she was, she was a gamey kind of person. She had a really great spirit. She said, okay, we'll play it. We had the most amazing week as the, the complaints just rolled off her tongue <laughs> one after another. And each time I'd be catching, and, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. And we laughed the whole week. And amazingly, it kept up. I called her a lot those first couple of weeks afterwards. Hi, Mom. And, oh yeah. And her friend at home was doing this with her. And amazingly, it stuck. And it stuck for the last five years of her life. And I, I put in the book something, a poem that she had read, uh, that she wrote to me. This is seven months after, and in our family, we, um, uh, we always wrote poems for our birthdays. So she wrote this poem to me, uh, and she was losing her sight to macular degeneration in the, during this time. So she wrote, 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I'm blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd 
Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, (laughs) anyone can change. And you can change with practice. And that went all the way to the end of her life. Even the last year when she had cancer, she was very grateful she didn't have um, pain the way it was. But the last six months of her life, she was in bed. She couldn't go to the bathroom. In, uh, just, just had to be in bed. Her eyesight was pretty much gone. Hearing was gone, uh, except when they turned the hearing up, uh, hearing aids on loud. So it wasn't very good circumstances. But she kept on saying how blessed she was. And three weeks before the end, I visited her and went into her room uh, in the morning and uh, she looked very deep in contemplation. And then she opened her eyes and could tell I was there. And I said, wow, mom, where were you? You It looked like you were so deep. What was going through your mind? And she said, well, actually, my mind was completely devoid of all thoughts except thank you, God, Thank you, God. And I said, wow, can I quote you on that? (laughs) And she said, will I get a commission? (laughs) And then at the very end of her life, she always had a sense of humor. At the very end of her life, uh, near the end, I said, do you want me to say any words uh, at your memorial service? She was ready to go. And she said, oh, yeah, sure. And she dictated me uh, a number of things. And then she said towards the end, I don't know what I did to deserve this life. It's been such an incredible run. I have been so blessed. And then she said, blessed. It's such a simple word and it means everything. So it's possible to change. Start noticing those wholesome states of well-being that arise. Don't miss them. Open to the dukkha when it's here. But actually, those wholesome states give you a greater context with which to process all the inevitable sorrow and suffering that's part of life. That's how this path not only is happiness in the moment, but leads to the highest happiness. So let's sit for a moment. for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.